You join me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, this morning we are looking at verses 1 through 6 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The title of our sermon is A Unified Body. Our keywords for worshipers in training are unity, worthy, and body. Now throughout the history of mankind... There have always been ways in which individuals or groups of individuals have been recognized. They've been awarded for hard work or for victories. Whether it's on the battlefield or on the the sports field, mankind has a long-standing tradition of recognizing that some people involved in the clash are worthy of honor. In many arenas... There are winners and there are losers. And among the winners even, there are often those who are considered the elite, those who have proved their worth above all others. In sports, we award those who are considered the most valuable player or those who are best at a particular position. In the military, we award those who show courage or valor. In academics, students are given honors. And there are distinctions for the highest grades or the best projects. The idea in each of these cases is not that we're awarding individuals or teams for doing what they're supposed to be doing, but those who have done more than what was expected of them. And in many ways, our culture has lost sight of the why behind bestowing honor upon an individual, watering down the whole significance and idea of giving reward. When everybody gets a trophy, nobody's trophy matters. When all of the grades are curved so that everybody has a higher grade point average, an honors designation becomes meaningless. When you're on a team, the expectation is that you play as a member of that team, that you fulfill your role and play your part. When you're in school, the expectation is that you're studying and passing your classes and not depending on mathematical sleight of hand to get you through. When you're on the battlefield, either you pull your weight and carry your load and watch your buddies back or someone loses their life. To do what is expected of you isn't worthy of reward. It's simply doing what you are supposed to be doing. In other words... Showing up to work on time and completing your projects on schedule does not warrant a reward any more than breathing or eating. Now, all of us have various callings in our lives. And most of the time, we associate this idea of calling with our jobs and our careers. But all of us are called. Sons and daughters, mothers, fathers, caregivers, students, teachers, citizens... And each one of our callings, all of us have multiple callings, each of them come with a certain set of expectations. And if we are faithful to our calling, we are simply doing what is expected of us without the promise of some great reward of recognition. Now, of course, it's nice to be honored. It's wonderful to be celebrated when others see our efforts, finding them to be noteworthy, but our reward should simply be 
that we've accomplished what we were called to do that is before us and that we've done so to the glory of God. In other words, our worth should not be determined by the awards we can pin on our chest or hang on our wall, but by whether or not we've met the expectations that are given to us. It ought to be reward enough that we can maintain the honor and the value of whatever our calling may be without bringing shame or or disrepute to that calling so that God would be honored, so that we would live worthy of our calling. And in our text this morning, that's the very thing the Apostle Paul urges us to, that we would consider a very specific calling in our lives as Christians and to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Now, he's not talking about jobs or any specific ministry even, but he's talking about something more important and more fundamental. This calling isn't about earning anything. It's not about being awarded in any way because of our walk. Because the earning has already been done. The reward is already waiting. Now this simply is about walking in a way that is commensurate with the calling. Walking in such a way that what is professed with our lips and believed in our hearts is on the same level as the actions of our lives. We're beginning chapter 4 this morning in Paul's letter, which marks a shift in, an overall, in the overall structure. Ephesians is a very typical example of the literary structure that was common with the Apostle Paul in his writings. He, he began with a theological foundation, which we saw in chapters 1 through 3. And once that foundation is laid, he moves on to build the practical outworking of all that he has already discussed. So we see in Ephesians, in the first three chapters, Paul praises God for his marvelous work, which was sufficient and effective for our salvation, which all hinges on Christ's redemptive accomplishments. And from that work, he forms a new humanity, a new society called the body of Christ. But now in chapter 4, Paul takes this theology and he begins to apply it for each of us. So from chapter 4 to the end of the letter, we have some very practical application of everything that we've looked at thus far. And right out of the gate, Paul presses us to consider who we are now. What is our calling now that we understand how God has saved us and what he has created in the church? How How are we to live in light of such a great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And, and as we're living our lives, not for awards, not for recognition, not so that we can be some super Christians who have a lot of accolades, but are we living our lives as faithful believers, honoring God in all that we are and in all that we do? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You can find our text on page 977 in the Blue ESV Bible. Paul begins in verse 1 with our first point, which is the church must walk worthy in our calling as the children of God. Look at verse 1. He writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now verse 1 begins with that word, therefore, 
And here Paul is referring, as we've already said, back to all of the theological foundation he's laid. So he's saying, because of all that I've written thus far, because of what God has done on your behalf in and through Jesus Christ, you are now called as a people of God to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which you have been called. And Paul's main point of emphasis is the church. Not immediately individuals, because remember, Paul's writing to a community of believers. In fact, if you recall, we identified at the very beginning that this is a circular letter. It was going around to various local assemblies, and it wasn't even confined to one local church. So the you of verse 1 is the communion of saints. It's the believers, the church. This is about Christians living life together in the church of God. And that will become more clear in the verses ahead. So Paul is pleading with us to consider our standing as children of God and to walk worthy of that calling. He doesn't mean that we should attempt to deserve our place, to earn God's favor because we don't deserve God's favor. It's by grace alone that we have God's favor. But what we ought to do, what we must do is recognize... That because God has given his favor to us, that there's something that God deserves from us in return. So the issue isn't our personal worth. The issue is the worth of our calling, our calling as children of God. The, The issue is recognizing that we are who we are in light of what God has done. Just just think of everything Paul has laid out for us since chapter one. Chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, God chose us for himself before the world was created. Verse 5, God predestined us to be his children, and that means heirs of all that the Father owns. Verse 7, God sent his Son Christ to atone for all of our trespasses and sins. Verse 13, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. Chapter 2, verse 7, God promises to spend all eternity increasing our joy in the immeasurable riches of his grace. Chapter 3, in verse 10, God has given us the mission as the church to display his wisdom even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Or as chapter 1 and verse 12 says, we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. This is our calling. And this calling that Paul is talking about is the calling that we have as the children of God, as members of the household of God. And hopefully we see this as a privilege far greater and a purpose far greater than any other calling that we have in our lives. The calling of our jobs, the roles that we play in our relationships are very important and they bear good an important fruit, and sometimes they may even gain notoriety and recognition, but our calling as God's children includes divine sonship. We become beneficiaries of all that God owns. And so we may be called as doctors, we may be called as engineers and accountants and mechanics and cosmetologists and teachers and moms and grandpas. All of these are important, but all of these will only last a few decades. Our calling as the children of God, our calling as the church of God, will last forever. Whatever our calling in life is, 
we should pursue that with all that we are to the glory of God. We should desire to see our career field or our parenting or our marriages all look like they ought with integrity and honor. But how much more should the honor and the privilege of being made Christians in the church of God shape our daily lives? Now, of course, Paul begs the question here, what does that mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which you've been called? It means we should, first and foremost as the church, but also as individual believers, represent and reflect something of the holiness and the goodness of our great God and Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means we, as a church, are to be governed by the Spirit of God. Everything we do should have some reflection of our unique and unbreakable union with God. Our calling is as a united body of the children of God. So we should endeavor to live together as the children of God. It means that we die to ourselves, that we pursue the purposes and plans that God has laid out, that his glory might shine all the brighter. It means that we would have the heart of the prophet who said, I must decrease that he might increase. Living in a manner worthy of our calling is to live in such a way that our minds and our hearts are steadily fixed on striving and struggling to cast off our sins and to put on the righteousness of Christ. And the more faithfully we pursue this as individuals the more we're able to work together in the church for the glory of God. That's, that's what it means to walk worthy of our calling as the church. Collectively, a people who are striving to glorify God with all of life, coming together as the body of Christ and serving alongside one another as members of that body. Well, Paul goes on to describe this in more specific terms. Our second point, the church is a body of unified individuals living for the advantage of others. Look at verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we briefly considered Paul's exhortation here a few weeks ago, but now we come to the text and we see how foundational these verses right here are to all of Paul's theology and specifically to the remainder of his letter to the Ephesians. This part of Ephesians really sets the tone for the entire second half of the letter. All of the remaining appeals in the letter to the Ephesians are founded upon verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Verse 17 of chapter 4 through chapter 5 and verse 14, he lays out what a changed life looks like in community. Chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6 and verse 9, we see what changed relationships look like in community. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, we see Paul's wonderful exhortations regarding spiritual warfare. And all of those things are linked to this initial plea to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. How are they linked together? Well, moral and relationship change requires unity. And when there is unity, we are made able to stand against all of the threats of disunity because there are plenty. And they are spiritual in nature. Now, in Paul's exhortation 
He calls us to unity. Is he saying that we have to have unity in everything and anything? This can be confusing to Christians sometimes. As believers, hopefully, we are very concerned about the truth. We very much want to do, and we really do believe that the Word of God has a specific meaning, and it is our job to figure out what that meaning is and to live according to that meaning. We don't get to read the Bible and decide what it means for us and how we want to apply it. And we, we come to the Scriptures knowing that God intended something. And we want to understand what he intended. So it's, it's easy for us to conclude that the unity that Paul is talking about here is a unity based upon a doctrinal agreement. Maybe the basis for unity is that we agree doctrinally. And finding and knowing and adhering to the truth of God's word is very important. And I believe it is one of the primary tasks of the church. But... I want to challenge our thinking here a little bit. I understand the drive and the desire to see Christian unity in terms of doctrinal agreement. It's very tempting. It's a very understanding conclusion to draw. However, I believe that conclusion from this text is wrong. Real Christian unity, the foundation of our oneness is much deeper than common confession on any number of doctrinal issues. The foundation of our oneness, the foundation of our unity, is our common membership in the body of Christ. Let me read from John Calvin. I think what he says is important. He writes this, By unity of the church, we must understand a unity in which we feel persuaded that we are truly engrafted. For unless we are united with all the other members under Christ our head, no hope of the future inheritance awaits us. All the elect of God are so joined together in Christ that as they depend on one head, so they are, it were compacted into one body, being knit together like its different members, made truly one by living together under the same spirit of God in one faith, hope, and charity, called not only to the same inheritance of eternal life, but to participation in one God and one Christ. I hope you notice what he said. What is the foundation of our unity? A common father and Christ as our common head. Notice, his emphasis wasn't first and foremost that we agree on everything doctrinally. Now, Calvin wouldn't argue that there are certain things that must be believed for one to actually be a Christian. I don't get to just say I'm a Christian because I want to say that I am. There must be things I believe. There must be some kind of change that happens objectively, and that works itself out objectively. But there will be a whole host of things we may not agree on. My goodness, no two people in this room are going to be in agreement on doctrinal issues 100% of the time. It's not possible. Your elders all have differences on certain areas. And there are times I have to let them know they're wrong. But if we want to base our unity on doctrine, where do we draw the line? Where do we decide when we can maintain unity and when it should be cut off. 
Now, all of us probably have our own lists of what we believe is most important. The Bible doesn't really give us that list, does it? Because I think we need to see our unity based on something else. I hope we see that instead we must acknowledge one another as brothers and sisters in Christ first and start from a position of unity as brothers and sisters in Christ before we move on to finding agreement in areas of faith and belief. In other words, we are united as brothers and sisters with the same Father and the same Redeemer. And once we've established that truth, then our relationships begin to move forward as we deal with doctrinal disagreements, without rancorous division. And this is the New Testament position. If we are Christians, and please remember, that's the prerequisite here. But if we are Christians, there is a unity that we are called to maintain. And we're not one because of common polity or common belief, but because we are Christians. And that truth is inescapable. It's really tempting to want to only find union with those we agree with on whatever we determine to be important. That makes our lives and our interactions a lot less messy, but that's not what the Bible calls us to. Completely isolating ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ is very unhealthy. And any church that does that will begin down a very dangerous road because we need iron sharpening iron. And if, if, if our answer to disagreements is to not maintain unity, then we will not achieve what the Lord wants for his church. In fact, I believe that some of the differences that exist in the body of Christ exist so that the Lord can humble and shape us and change us as we work those differences out the way the Bible calls us to. A lot of our character is revealed in the midst of disagreements. And if we want to run away and avoid all of that, then we're actually missing out on the very blessings God has stored up for those who will take the time to work out differences. And this idea of unity is expressed throughout the New Testament in a variety of ways. We are all members of the body of Christ. We are all members, or we are all branches on the vine. We're all members of the household of God. We are all fellow citizens with the saints. We have all been given to Christ. We've all been born again by the Spirit. We all are indwelt by the triune God. We all have God as our Father, Christ as our Shepherd, the Holy Spirit as our Comforter. These are where we find our greatest unity. And as much as I love our heritage, as much as I'm thankful for what we believe, and as much as I believe it to be true according to God's word, this isn't just talking about Reformed Baptists. And so we're bound together with all of the saints the world over to include those who have gone before us, those who will come after us, who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead and they have been saved. And because of that unity, we owe it to one another, simply as Christians, we owe it to one another that we recognize and assist and love and cooperate with one another. Listen, we have no right to insist on other conditions for unity than what God has given us. We are one in Christ. That's why Paul urges us to maintain. He says maintain the unity. We may push against the unity, but we can't undo it. It's there because it's 
founded upon the unchanging head who is Christ. So maintain the unity. And we're not talking about some kind of purely spiritual, idealistic, utopian idea here. The body of Christ is not an idea, but it's made up of real flesh and blood. And so our unity must have visible, concrete reality tied to it. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus prays for in John 17, 21. He says he's praying for his church and he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, our unity as Christians, not just as Ephesus Church, but, but Christians, that should mirror the relationship of the Father and the Son. And I understand this is tough. There are things that I really, really hold dearly and stand strongly on, but unless I'm willing to say that everyone who disagrees with me on those issues isn't a Christian then I have an obligation to maintain unity with them so that the world can see the love of God at work in us. Unity in the body of Christ becomes visible as we care for one another. Even caring for those maybe separated by hundreds of miles, as we cooperate in things like evangelism, as we maybe even come together in public assemblies, even maintaining unity through disagreement and debate. The number one evangelistic tool in the 21st century is the church being the church in this way. How do I know? Because Jesus said so in John 17. And to do this takes something really, really difficult, but really, really important living not for ourselves and our own advantage, but living for the advantage of others. Notice in verse 2 what he says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What's he saying? He's saying, I have to die to myself. I have to die even to my preferences And where there is legitimate disagreement on important matters, we need to bear with one another in love and with an eagerness to make sure that we continue forward with the spirit of unity and peace. Why would I need to be exhorted to bear with one another in love? Why does he use that language? Because Paul knows there's going to be disagreements. He knows there will be issues that arise among Christians that we're not going to find agreement on. So how do I deal with it? Well, he doesn't say run away and cut off the relationship. He says, bear with one another in love, be eager to maintain unity. And what does that take? That takes humility, that takes patience, that takes gentleness. And there's something beautiful that comes through all of that. In time, through discussions, through debates, all conducted in this manner, there can be real, lasting change that comes to everyone who's involved. We may have a better way of thinking about things. We may have a better way of articulating things. But when we come to disagreements, it may be that we realize that there's a better way to think about it. It may be that we realize, I know we don't, come to this conclusion often, 
that we were wrong on some things. We might be able to help others see where they've been wrong on some things. But that takes time. That takes humility. That takes patience. That takes a tremendous amount of love and a desire to continue to be unified on what's most important. That takes a relationship that begins on the foundational truth that we are united together by Jesus Christ. We are united together by a common father and a common head who is Jesus Christ. Now Paul goes on in our final point this morning to further emphasize the unity of the body of Christ. He he teaches us that the church is a single body consisting of many parts with one head. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The great 19th century theologian Charles Hodge wrote, All Protestants agree that the church in heaven and on earth is one. There is one fold, one kingdom, one family, one body. They all agree that Christ is the center of this unity. Believers are one body in Christ Jesus. That is, in virtue of their union with him. This is a wonderful statement from Paul in verses 4 through 6. Several New Testament scholars believe verses 5 and 6 were actually an early Christian creed or confession or hymn. But within it is a very important element for us to see. And remember, I said earlier that our unity starts with the conviction that is built on the foundation that we are Christians, first and foremost. However, we have to get to that part first, don't we? We have to be Christians. And Paul here gets a little bit more into the details of that. He gives us a Trinitarian formula. Each of the great things he raises in verses 4 through 6 are connected to one of the persons of the Trinity. Notice in verse 4, he says, one spirit. In verse 5, he says, one Lord. In verse 6, he says, one God. And if we are to be Christians, we have to be Trinitarian. A person cannot, they may not understand the Trinity. They may not be able to see the Trinity in the text right away before it's taught to them. That's fine. We've, we've all been there. But what we're saying, I believe what Paul is undeniably getting at is that if we are to reject or deny the Trinitarian nature of God, we are denying that very foundation upon which we can be united. Because Christians believe God to be who he is. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what are the works of the Trinity here? The Holy Spirit creates the body of Christ of which we are all members. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greeks or slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So the Holy Spirit creates, fills, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. And this is why believers can come together, having never met one another before, and instantly have great unity and great fellowship. Sometimes when I travel, I stay with other Christians in their homes, and I may have never met them before. Many of you have hosted people in your homes, even very recently, not knowing anything about them other than the fact that they're Christians. I I do that regularly as I travel, and I've had family members before ask me, how can you go and stay in someone's house that you've never met before? 
Isn't that strange? Isn't that awkward? Isn't that difficult? No. It's actually quite wonderful. Because we have a union which is worked out by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, bringing us together like nothing else can. So whether I'm in Rincon, Georgia, or New York City, or Lagos, Nigeria, or Calcutta, or Bangkok, or Beijing, I can find brothers and sisters in Christ and instantly be knowing that I'm united to them and that we have so much more in common than we do with anyone else in the world. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has united us together and dwells within us. Well, here we also see the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. There's no doubt that one Lord here is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And our one Lord creates one faith because he is the object of, and the focus of our belief. And because of our one faith, we've participated in one baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now the question here of water or spirit baptism is not what Paul's getting at. There is water involved, we know that, but notice Paul's address is not looking at the mode. He's not even looking at the proper recipients of baptism. But rather the baptism of what all Christians really agree on. Namely, that there is a water baptism and it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the issue is one shared baptism. And what are the results? That we share in one Lord and one faith and that one baptism and it brings about one hope. And our great hope is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and sharing in the glory of the life to come. In verse 6, we see the work of the Father. And again, we have this great emphasis of Paul throughout his letter on our shared paternity. You and I may be different. We may be as different as two people can be. We may look different. We may act different. We may have different likes and dislikes and hobbies and ideas. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when it's all said and done, we are family. We have the same Father. And because of that, we have an unbreakable unity which we must work to maintain. So Paul shows us that our Christian unity is wrought by each member of the Godhead, each person in the Trinity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so our unity is eternal. Our unity is unbreakable. So we have to know that the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It's no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. So we can get mad at each other and go our separate ways. We can get sinful and talk bad about each other and gossip and slander. We can do all kinds of sinful, evil things. But if we are Christians, the reality is that no matter how hard we try, we are actually never truly separated from one another. And so instead of doing those things, instead of being eager to find reasons why we ought to create dissension, and instead of majoring on the minors and finding every reason we can to go our separate ways, maybe we should acknowledge who we are called to be as the children of God and acknowledge what God seeks to accomplish through our unity 
And in doing so, walking in a manner that is worthy of that calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. Suppose for a moment that by a miracle we could, we could bring back some of the great Christians of the centuries under one roof. From the 4th century, we could have Augustine of Hippo. And the 10th century, Bernard of Clairvaux. From the 16th, the peerless reformer, John Calvin. From the 18th century, John Wesley, the Methodist advocate of free will. With him, George Whitfield, the great evangelist from, uh, of Savannah. From the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon, D.L. Moody. The 20th century, Billy Graham. Bring all of them together, and if all of them gathered together under one roof, there would not be very many unanimous votes on any matters that we would bring up. There wouldn't. But underneath all of it, there would be a tremendous amount of unity. Because the more these men lifted up Christ and focused on him, the greater their unity would actually be. Brothers and sisters, are we walking in unity? Let's remember our calling is to walk in a manner worthy of it and reflect on the beauty of that unity which is built upon our triune God. Our unity with fellow Christians is indestructible. That doesn't mean that our, our, uh, the things that make it so it's difficult for us to do church life together in the local context, that those aren't important. They are important. We need to talk about them and work through them. But in so many ways, those things also display the diversity of God in his people. And so together, let's focus on Jesus Christ and consciously ask the Holy Spirit to help us cultivate a character which builds unity a character of humility and gentleness and patience and love so that we can be unified peacemakers instead of being dividers. Let's not be puffed up. Let's not be impatient and resentful. And then the unity that Christ died to create will become real in our church here and will not bring disrepute upon the great God who called us into his kingdom because we're able to express our great unity with one another as brothers and sisters, not just here, and not just in our community, and not just with those around the world we agree with, but with brothers and sisters throughout the world who we find common unity with in Christ. Christ is the head of his church. It is upon Christ that the church is built, and it is in Christ we find our great unity. Are we unified with the body of Christ? I pray that God will do that work in our midst, in our own hearts, as he brings us together with the body of Christ throughout the world, rejoicing together in what we have because of what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you (coughs) for this important exhortation from your word. It is easy, Lord, for us to look to your word to understand your word to the best of our abilities and in doing so, wanting to only be with those people who see things the way that we do. Father, we don't want to minimize truth. We don't want to minimize what you seek to accomplish through your word. But we do want to know who your people are. 
that we can be united with them first and foremost on the very important foundation (coughs) that we (coughs) are in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters. And the truth of regeneration and new life in Christ is that which our unity is built upon. And Father, help us as we interact with other believers. We may feel like we're very far apart in our understanding of things, and perhaps on some issues we may be, but help us to love them, to be patient, to be tender-hearted, to be kind and gracious, to walk with them, to love them, and to be eager to maintain unity with them. We may not be able to gather together under the same roof every week, but we can still love and serve one another. We may be able to serve alongside one another. And we can rejoice in what you have done in all of us to bring about new life in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look forward to that one hope that is all ours in Christ, that one day all of our differences will be set right as we stand face to face with our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.